Happy Freaky Friday from the Podcast Daily. That is Bill Landis. I am Austin Ward, and it's just one more episode, people. You can survive. Berm will be back soon enough. His vacation, wherever he is, is winding down. And I was so jealous, Bill, when I took my vacation and you guys decided to dip into the mailbag and have a little Mm -hmm. fun. It's like, you know what? I got to have one of those for me. Let's do it. Yeah, we uh, we sent out uh, a call to questions for our subtext subscribers, uh, like Berm and I did uh, a couple weeks ago. We're like, I continue to be amazed by the response we get because we ask for questions quite a bit between, mostly for Kings of Columbus. But like, you guys never have any shortage of them, so we really appreciate it. And some of them were funny. Yeah, Most I love it. Funny. Yeah, haven't done that in a while. I love getting the uh, the fix of that during the season with road breaks and like. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we're not you know cracking open any beers here on friday morning but Mm-mm. um it's fun to to hear from the ohio state fans and like i think what i really appreciate about uh, some of the following that you and i and berm and, and doug have built up is like the recognition that in the middle of february there might not always be a ton of football to get into and we are more than happy to talk about the buckeyes all year round and we do but occasionally there's a, a nice day to just relax a little bit and uh, get into the rest of things. Maybe not basketball, which is clearly not my forte. Um, (laughs) But anyway, everything else football related, let's do that for sure. Yeah, we've got a a decent mix here of football questions. We have one basketball question um, because it is is the topic du jour. Sure. Uh, and then a couple of uh, non Ohio State questions that, you know, if you don't like when we talk about stuff, that, about that stuff, you can press fast forward. Um, there's only a couple of those, too. One, one at the end about Burns. Are we I quoting Jay Z? Not you intentionally, don't... but yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, and I haven't, right. I did not sneak any peeks. Mm-hmm. Bill was in charge. I didn't dive into the inbox. These are all fresh, one take. Uh, I don't know what we're getting into. All right, so let's kick it off here. Football question to start, of course. Uh, from This is from Scott. I like the way he couched this. Uh, player rotation has been a bit of a Goldilocks and a three-bear situation for the Buckeyes in 2022 and 2023. Several positions rotating possibly too much, and then a season of the team rotating what may have been too little. With the potential grind of a 12-team playoff and the desire to develop a bulk of new starters for the following season, Will 2024 be the season where the rotation seems just right? Wow. (laughs) I doubt it. Uh, I don't want to start Freaky Friday on a a negative note, but it it feels like that's the hardest thing for Ohio State to get right and the hardest thing for them to figure out the, the correct mix to make sure that, you know, in the Goldilocks example, that that's just the perfect bowl of porridge in the rotation. Like, Mm. I, I do think you look at Larry Johnson's adjustment. I thought that was encouraging for the most part last year and that by and large, that was pretty close to what I thought they should be doing. Even Notre Dame where it was like proving a point almost to an extent, like JT Tuimolo and Jack Sawyer made big plays and were still fresh enough to finish that game off in the fourth quarter, the way that the Buckeyes needed them to. Um, so I didn't, I didn't look at it as a detriment, although at the expense of maybe Kenyatta Jackson and Caden Curry reps, you could make a case that they probably should have played more with an eye on the future. The biggest test case for this year, Bill, right, is going to be what do you do in the secondary with this mm-hmm. overflowing collection of talent? And that's it's got to be hard. There's If it's a high leverage snap, 
I can't imagine that anybody would want to not see Lathan Ransom and Caleb Downs and Denzel Burke out, out on the field, Jordan Hancock. Um, but we're still in a world where you have to find a way to use Sonny Styles. Davis and Igbenosin and Jermaine Matthews are going to be both fighting there, I think, tooth and nail to play as many reps as they can in those high leverage downs. And like, you don't want it to be a situation where the game is on the line and your starters aren't on the field. Uh, the, the tough part for Ohio State then, if it gets to that, is like, all right, well, what if it's a two touchdown game? Are, are you ready to experiment a little bit? Are you willing to sacrifice one drive for the betterment of the future of the program? Like, I don't know that there's a perfect answer to that. Yeah, I, I don't know that there is either. I think I, on February 16th, I'm going to choose to be optimistic and say that, yes, they will get it right this year. Because I, I, I do agree with the way the question was asked. Like, it felt like a little too much two years ago. felt like they should have done it a little more last year. In both cases, there seemed to be no strategy. Like, the, in, in 2022, it was just sort of like, I don't know, we'll rotate when we feel like rotating. And then 2023 is like, we're not going to rotate at all. It's like, well, that's not really a strategy either. Um and, and I think they will be more strategic about it this year. At least, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that they that they will be. Um, and that's at every level of the defense, I, I think. Like, I, I think it's smart to put 2025 in the question because I, I don't want to see a year where you don't take the opportunities to play Kenyatta Jackson and Caden Curry and Caden McDonald when they present themselves to you because those guys are all going to be in position to start games in 2025. And it's been super frustrating to see like a guy like CJ Hicks get to this point, having just not played a lot. And I'm not talking about pushing for starter reps prior to this year. I'm just talking about playing in games that were blowouts. Like there, there were, there have been opportunities, perhaps not a ton, perhaps not as many as there should be, especially last year um, for a team like Ohio state, but certainly opportunities nonetheless that I don't think were always embraced. Um, and I hope they embrace those, but, but I still think that there's opportunity for the guys that you're talking about, like like a Jermaine Matthews, I think is good enough to play meaningful reps for Ohio State, and then I think they should do that over the course of a long season. Um, figure out the safety picture. I think you could have a fairly productive, or potentially very productive and reliable, like kind of three man thing going on at linebacker with Cody Simon, Sonny Styles, and C.J. Hicks. If you if you choose to play Sonny at at linebacker, so why not take advantage of that depth and, and ability and rotate a little bit there kind of like they did last year with Cody Simon and Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers like I don't know why you wouldn't be able to do that again um so the opportunities are definitely there um I don't want to like promise that it's going to happen because I'm just a guy talking about it I don't actually know what their thought process is and I think it's a good line of questioning for when we talk to defensive assistants in the spring but just with the the experience they have coming back in the depth at a couple of key spots like I, I I really do think they're going to rotate more and actually use it strategically um, at least in the back seven, and we'll see about the defensive line. I think that's kind of a different animal um, with the established stars there and, and everyone else kind of being being kind of green. Um, but I still think you could do it there too if you wanted to. So, like I said, I'm, I'm going to choose to be optimistic and say yes, but I'm sure I'll be you know disappointed by the third week of the season. Well, we almost exclusively talk about that being on defense, and I, I do think that there like, we heard a lot more later in the year and certainly around – Marvin Harrison Jr. and the likelihood of an opt-out like and Julian Fleming not being there, it was like, well, maybe Ohio State needed to rotate more and play six wide receivers. And so we've certainly heard that uh, increasingly, you know, from some parts of the Ohio State fan base. And I like, I don't know that that would have solved anything for that. It wouldn't have for the Cotton Bowl, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And Ohio, and Brian Hartline does seem to be really comfortable with the 
top group of four. And if somebody pushes their way into it, he'll play them. But I like if Jaden Bauer, just for example, had played more during the regular season, would that have made him more productive and effective and efficient in the Cotton Bowl? Like I don't, I don't personally, I don't know the answer, but I don't believe so because it, the things that we keep hearing about with how what's it going to take for him to take the next step and become that complete receiver, like most of that work is done on the practice field and not just by getting in a game. And if Brian Hartline's had a real eye for talent and he certainly got the most of it from what I can tell in terms of development and getting these guys ready for the NFL and ready to contribute when their number is called. I think it may have been primarily driven by how much we were impressed by Carnell Tate, both in the spring and in training camp, and then not knowing maybe what the injury setback was that kept him from playing as much in September and October as we would have anticipated. It was like more of a desire like, hey, why isn't Carnell Tate playing instead of Julian Fleming? It was like, Mm. may have been a combination of freshman learning and injury. And one, you can understand and the other we didn't really have any feel for what was going on there yeah no that that's important to keep in mind i think when talking about any, any of this like the way that and i'm not trying to turn it into a conversation on injuries but there are things that we just don't know about that can be leading to some of the decision making when it comes to personnel usage and meaning meaning injuries and, and stuff that's not fully disclosed um but I, you know, I, I, I thought at times last year they could have rotated more receiver. Like aside from Marvin, like I don't know that there was any one receiver who was having such a good year that you couldn't take him off the field for a few snaps to give a young guy a chance. Um, if not, just like to keep everybody fresh to see if he can't light a spark under a passing ta- a passing attack that was going through it a little bit last year. So like I, I understand that sentiment. I think this year, I think this year I could see the receiver rotation being a little deeper just because you kind of you have like a mecca who's established and and Carnell Tate's probably just about there. Um, but otherwise it's kind of wide open, I, th- I think. So you could see maybe that go something closer to like what we saw was at 2018 when it was like kind of six guys playing almost, almost equally, maybe not quite that deep, but even if it's four or five playing equally, that that's a pretty strong departure from what we've seen the last couple of years. Right. Um, I didn't think it was a good question that for 10 minutes, but here we go. Yeah. We can talk for anything about 10 minutes. I have I have the utmost confidence in that. Uh, here's a question from Jackson. Is this the type of offseason as Raiders that you like? Lots of transfers, job uncertainty, and new hires. Or once the season is over, are you ready for a break? Both. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did not like being on vacation and having that flood of news and not being part of it. Um, it's different for me to also realize that the sun was still going to come up and I had uh, reliable colleagues who could pick up the slack for me and I didn't have to break down every single part of that news. I thought that was pretty refreshing, even if still uncomfortable. (laughs) I I think you want some time off. Um, You know, we're, we are a little bit robotic in that we can talk about Ohio state, as you said, for 10 minutes about pretty much any topic that exists and even some that we make up um and like that's our life but we we do bleed real blood and we have families that want to spend time with us and they're like my wife is a huge ohio state fan even she's like did you get on that live stream to talk about bill o'brien like outside the hotel room at 10 30 at night on vacation <laughs> like why did you do that because i'm sick 
yeah. and I just, you know, it, so much of our of our livelihood is is wrapped up in this, which is a job, but also talking about sports as a hobby. Um, and you want to, we, we get to marry both of those together, which is awesome. And I'm, I think, uh, thank my blessings every day that we get to do that. Um, but taking vacation is also cool and needed at times. Yeah. But to get, I also think Bill, like I'm a little slightly older than you, but you don't even have to be, there's a, doesn't have to be an age difference to know that it's different than five years ago that there is enough college football news from January 1 to December 31st and only like five or six weeks really where you're stretching this kind of period leading up to spring ball. And then may once the transfer portal closes the rest of the year, like is full. Now you add in recruiting camps in June and media days in July and like training camp is there in August. You already knew that August through December was going to be full, but now all of January is leading up to the traditional signing period because of the transfer portal, because of the coaching carousel. Then March, like we're two weeks away from the start of spring ball, and that's going to go through the middle of April. Then the portal's open again. Like yeah. they, the NFL calendar has like, I, I never thought college football would be even close to the interest of the NFL where with 365 news, but it has reached that point. Yeah, it definitely is. I used to, talk to people and like oh people have, have been in the profession much longer than i have and they always said that covering college football was the best because you don't have to travel that much you only travel a handful of times a year um and depending where you are like even in columbus like much of the travel we do is, is not all that inconvenient although i guess you know now that the big 10 has teams in california it'll be a little more inconvenient um and there were built-in periods in the off season where off season where you just like kind of knew nothing was going to happen um now the periods of the calendar where you've can reasonably be confident that nothing's going to happen. It's like a, a couple weeks. It used to be like a couple months, and now maybe it's like end of middle of June to middle of July. Usually is a little is a little quiet, but but otherwise, um, yeah, it's a three sixty five kind of kind of deal, which it's it's okay. I don't I don't mind it. Um, I I like an active off season. Like it gives us fresh stuff to talk about, right? Like we could we could have come off a cotton ball and like dove right into position preview stuff and, and really milk that to get us to spring football. I'm sure we would have come up with a, with a way to do that, but um, certainly it's, it's nice to have other things to talk about. Not every off season I think is going to be as active as, as this one was knock on wood, but um, I actually, while it was like coming at us in waves and like for like a three week period, it seems like it was like nonstop of this guy's coming back. This guy's transferring in, they're hiring this guy. Like, I kind of like it. It like keeps you on your toes um, and it keeps things fresh. So it creates more work and it makes it more difficult to kind of unplug to your point. But um, I don't think I'm ever going to complain about having an opportunity to cover a team that people want to talk about 365 days a year, kind of no matter what's happening. Um, and it makes it a little easier when there actually are things happening. So, so I'm okay with it. Yeah, no, this is, this is probably the most extreme example for an off season that I can remember, but uh, it beats beats the alternative doing nothing yeah. but position previews for two months. <laughs> okay, today we're talking about right guards. <laughs> you would love that. Don't lie. Oh, yeah, offensive line week. <laughs> yeah, it's happening. Just wait. We got to do something in May. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get to another question. So here's the basketball question, and uh, we talked about this briefly on Snap Judgments after Chris Holtman got fired. So I would 
mostly point people in that direction. If you haven't listened to it yet, it is available on YouTube. It is available on our podcast feed, but um, we'll, we'll hit on this one real quick from, from Eric. Um, who's the best fit for a potential OSU basketball head coach hire? Um, who is the most realistic coach they should break the bank for if they decide they're flex their muscle and financial resources to help rate the program. So I guess it's like a two, it's like two prong. Like who is, who's like best fit, realistic, like not necessarily a moonshot. And then like, who's the guy that like money is no, uh, object, go get your guy higher. I, I feel like you're going to be a lot better at this than I am. I, I think. Yeah, it, it depends on what Ohio State wants to accomplish. It's like I said it on Snap Judgments. If they feel like they can lure a national championship winner out of retirement, someone who, because of his friendship with Chris Holtman, that may not be a detriment. It it may actually help them in some respects that he understands the job that he will that Jay Wright will have talked with Chris Holtman about what it's like in Columbus and the job description, the requirements, the recruiting base. Like maybe that is appealing enough to Jay Wright along with a, a hefty salary that he does check those boxes. Um, I don't know. I, realistic is that that's up to Jay Wright. He can do whatever he wants. Um, it does feel like then you're talking about, I mean, remember, I remember five years ago, like the hysteria over Archie Miller mm -hmm. and it felt like, that's got to be the, the cultural fit. And if you gave him Ohio State's resources, that's going to be a no-brainer. Like, make the move and, br and bring him in. Well, it did not work at Indiana. Um, maybe his brother is the best cultural fit. I don't yeah. know. Um, I, it's You're going to be way better at this than I am. But th those are, the, like, the names that immediately come to mind because I'm not into – I don't know that Ohio State should be speculating at, like – the mid-major level. I, I would prefer they didn't. And it's not to say there aren't good coaches there. Like clearly, clearly there are. Um, and maybe the right answer is in the mid-major ranks. Um, I I think like the first, the first part of the question, like who's, who's a fit and maybe wouldn't require you to go beyond what you've been comfortable paying for a basketball coach. I think it is like, you know, Sean Miller is at a mid-major. It's not receivers not mid-major anymore. Like Xavier is a major program in the Big East. So like Sean Miller, Xavier, um, who's a Cincinnati coach, is it Wes Miller, um, like somebody like that, like Chris Mack, who's currently unemployed, but is a former Xavier head coach and former Sean Miller assistant. Um, maybe that's someone you could hire that like fits regionally, kind of like understands maybe what it takes to win at Ohio state, a place like Ohio state and won't cost you $6 million a year, something like that. Lamont Paris at South Carolina, who's like from Ohio, maybe wouldn't be the most expensive hire in the world. I think if you're trying to hire like a dusty may at Florida Atlantic, he's going to be a pretty hot commodity. If he decides to leave Florida Atlantic, I think that'd be a pretty um, expensive hire, but I also could see him just kind of waiting out Mike Woodson in Indiana and staying at Florida Atlantic for another year. Um, and if you're really going, if you're like really willing to take a swing for it, I'll just say the same name I said on Snap Judgment. So it's just Tommy Lloyd at Arizona. Um, like Jay Wright, I think fits that category too. Um, but I think I'd rather almost have Tommy Lloyd, who is who has demonstrated an ability to win at a high level and is like still only up in his career, as opposed to Jay Wright, who you know he didn't flame out of Illinois, but he just kind of decided he was done with coaching, um, but has been out of it long enough that I would give me like a little bit of pause. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I would go, or like, I don't know, 
Scott Drew, I guess, would be similar, although I don't know how expensive that would actually be to get him, but he has a national championship. So there are any number of guys out there, but I think like it's almost like, do you want to hire like a regional guy, which is like kind of what they've done historically, um, or really take a swing and just like, you know, the whole country's available to you. You'll pay whatever you're willing to pay. Who do you want to get? Like, I, I don't know which side of that coin Ohio State's going to end up on, which I think makes this this hire fascinating with what direction they'll go. Yeah. I mean, it, we also know very little about what Ross Bjork is going to do to lead Ohio State and how that compares to his previous tenure at Texas A&M and Ole Miss. Like, mm-hmm. what's the priority here? How much are you willing to spend on that? It is not football. So you're not they're not going to be the highest paid coach in the country and they're not going to be in the top five to be an Ohio state basketball coach. So, you know, I I assume it's not just a dream wish list, and anybody is going to take the job or be offered enough money that makes it enticing enough for them to leave. I think, you know, it's that age old question that no one likes hearing that conversation anymore. Like what does Ohio state want the basketball program to be? And what does Ross Bjork, like what does he envision it being? Because that, could well be very different than what Gene Smith saw. Yep. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more when we think they have it narrowed, narrowed down. Maybe um, we don't do a whole lot of hoops talk on here, but it's worth talking about at the moment. So appreciate the question on that uh, from Eric. Let's do, let's do one more football question. And then I'll ask you one that's a little uh, bit nonsense and not football related uh, <laughs> from Matt, from Matt M. Uh, can we assume that Chip Kelly will be in the box calling plays? And when is the last time, that Ohio State had both of its coordinators calling plays from the press box. Um, I, I think probably yes, right? Like Ryan Day probably would want Chip Kelly up in the box. But I, I, I was thinking about the second part of the question the last time they had it, so you can scrap the whole Ryan Day era. Um, yep. And I, like 18, was Greg Schiano, like Ryan Day was in the box in 18. Was Greg Schiano in the, in the press box in 2018? I can't remember. Uh, no. I don't believe so because I think he was on the field, right? I remember he had a he had a get back coach, mm-hmm. and I, I think it was Quinn Barham was the get back coach, and there was some scenario where Greg Schiano. I remember he he was out on the field and had to be yanked back, and I wanted to do a story about the get back coaches, and they're like, no you can't do that. They don't, they don't want to, (laughs) and we don't want them to. And I was like, okay, I just, you know, so I'm, unless I, unless I'm mistaken, I thought Greg Shiano was working on the field. I I think you're right. Um, so then that would scrap 18, 16, 17 and 18. Um, for, I can't remember if Greg, Greg Shiano was in the box all, all those years. I I think you are correct that he was. So is it 15? Like, Chris Ash calling it from the booth and Luke was on the field. I know that they, yeah, upstairs. yeah, but they were, they had the co situation in 16. So I don't, and I don't, I don't, it was like a convoluted situation where like they had two co-coordinators on defense and like, you had no idea who was calling the offensive plays <laughs> in 2015 between urban Meyer, Ed Warner and Tim Beck. Um, nobody was. Yeah. Because I think the answer is that nobody was, um, I would say probably like technically probably 15, 14 or 15 um, without knowing exactly the dynamic between Luke Fickle and Chris. I think Chris Ash was calling it um, from the booth on defense. And then Tom, uh, Herman, Tom Herman was calling it from the booth on offense in 14, right? He was. So I think somewhere in that stretch, 
Yeah. There had to be. So like yeah. because Chris Ash was in there upstairs in 14. Tom Herman was upstairs in 14. Yeah. So that's you know. Ohio State never I don't know if they wanted to like poke the bear with Luke Fickle. It's like I think Chris Ash was probably more active in the play calling defensively in that year than they ever led on publicly. Uh, which is not to say that Luke Fickle's voice was not important um, yeah. or being given on a, a play-to-play basis. But to answer the question, I think, to the best of our ability, probably the last time Ohio State won a national championship, that was the scenario. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> just, something, just something to keep in the back of your mind as we go through this season. It, it, is, an, it is an interesting dynamic worth pointing out from Matt, though, that like, it has been a while. Um, since we've had like clarity on that, on that, which I think we will this year, like Chip Kelly is calling the offense, yeah. Jim Knowles is calling the defense, and they will most, I think, more than likely both be up in the booth. We know, we know Jim, will, excuse me, Jim Knowles will. Um, we got a question from. Uh, listen on subtext. I think you can put whatever name you want to put in there. So maybe this isn't this person's real name, but their name is John Kennedy, oh. and he claims that his middle initial is F. So this question is from JFK from Jersey. Welcome, uh, JFK. Yeah, it's a question about television. Um, have you watched The Bear on Hulu? If not, you must. I just been watched two 10 episode seasons and it keeps getting better. Have you watched The Bear? I have not watched it. I have seen and heard those reviews that I simply must, but I have not given in to that impulse yet. Yeah, I watched the first season and I haven't watched the second season because I'm a little. This is what happened with Ted Lasso. The show became too self-aware, and I was worried about that happening with the bear. So I thought to myself, like, I'll just watch the first season and pretend like that was it, and it'll be perfect in my mind, and I won't have to worry about it. Although, but people do say the second season of the bear is good. But people also said the second season of Ted Lasso was good, and that sucked. So, yeah, that I'm was a lot. I'm a little nervous about it being ruined. So, I'm not. I'm not going to listen to any. Berm kept trying to maintain, oh, the second season of Ted Lasso is actually good. Did you like the Christmas episode? Well, the Christmas episode shouldn't exist, for one. <laughs> and no, the second season was not good. Don't <laughs> don't get clouded by the fact that season one was perfect. Like it should have, they should have ended the show there. Been fine. Instead, they yeah. progressively ruined it and made it worse and worse, starting with season two. Yeah, and now they're, they're gonna do spin-offs to make it even worse, which is unfortunate. No one has an original idea anymore. Yeah, I guess I can't fault them for making money. Um, All right, here, we're back to football. Here's a question from Evan. Uh, What are your guys' thoughts on how Michigan, he wrote Uh, T-T-U-N, is is reloading. Yeah, (laughs) is reloading. I just want want to make it clear that Evan didn't say Michigan. Okay. Uh, What are your guys' thoughts on how Michigan is reloading on the defensive coaching side? Um, Thoughts on any of the individual coaches? They seem to be shaping up pretty well, unfortunately. Uh, they have appeared to evade the portal exodus, which seems like uh, which seems to play a major factor in why Sharon Moore was hired. Um, I will just lay out like what they've done with their staff. The the big one is Wink Martindale coming from the NFL to be their coordinator. He was previously the New York Giants coordinator and has extensive experience in that Raven system where they've gotten their last two coordinators from. Um, and I think they're not they're not official, but they have Stephen Adagoke, defensive backs, who was with the Houston Texans safeties last year a former Michigan assistant, um, Brian Jean, Mary linebackers from Tennessee, another former Michigan assistant, uh, Greg Scruggs on defensive line, who was a, an assistant of Luke Fickles at Wisconsin. 
and Cincinnati. So it sounds like that is their defensive staff. Do you have any thoughts on what Michigan has done with their hires this offseason? Yeah, I, I maybe I'm in the minority. Um, and I know that between the two of us that you you have more optimism that Michigan can withstand this offseason and the transition. Um, you have more more faith that they can be a competitive football team next year than I do. I think mm-hmm. that's fair from our previous conversations to say. So I don't look at it as that they have reloaded. I think Wink, Wink Martindale has a very strong reputation. Um, it was nice that the Harbaugh family could coerce somebody else to go to Michigan and help see them through this transition. Um, you know, I don't think of him and his most recent work as being like, well, that's a massive slam dunk because they were able to entice him out of the NFL ranks back to college to, to help lead Michigan's defense. Like that is a clear step down and tells me that his future job prospects with the giants were probably not as strong and encouraging as maybe the Michigan fan base would like them to be. The rest of that group is like, all right, ties to the program, willingness to see them through what is probably going to be a difficult stretch if or when the NCAA comes in and has their say, mm-hmm. whether that's with asterisks or with penalties or you know whatever else they decide whenever that case is resolved. I don't believe across the profession that there is a strong desire for people to work with for Sharon Moore. And I think that that is reflected in this coaching staff on the defensive side. And in terms of the portal, like dodging a massive exodus, who's left? They're all at the NFL draft combine, this record setting group. Like they avoided it at defensive tackle. That's good. That's a foundational block. But like, I think it's going to be ugly for Michigan this year. I really do. Uh, yeah, you're right. You and I see it a little differently. I don't. I, Doug and I actually just did a win total show on Kings of the North, and I the total for Michigan was nine and a half, and I took the under. So like, I don't. I don't think they're gonna like repeat as national championships, and I definitely think they're they're not a shoe in to make the twelve team playoff next year. But I I still think their defense is gonna be pretty good just based off personnel. Um, you mentioned the tackles, like Will Johnson's back. Both their starting safeties are back. Um, they're kind of like remade a little bit at defensive end and linebacker, like not bringing everybody back, but they're bringing enough back personnel wise. Um, that I think they'll still be pretty good on that side of the ball. But like, I'm, I'm not really moved by the wink Martindale hire. Like he was an okay coordinator with the Ravens. He was not so good with the giants and he hasn't been in college, I think in 20 years. Um, so like all, I think all that matters. And, and I'm not impressed with the, I guess I'm not impressed with Sharon Moore's inability to keep Michigan people on staff. Like I think they, made that decision thinking probably not so much they were going to keep Jesse Minter as a defensive coordinator, but they would be able to keep like Mike Elston and Steve Klinkscale and not have to like remake their entire defensive staff, which is what they're doing now. So like that makes me think a little differently about what their defensive prospects are, but I I still think it's mostly about the players and the talent and they still have like a decent amount of it or much better position than a lot of teams defensively. I think with some of the players they have coming back to still have a very good defense next year. But I also have no idea what their offense is going to be. Their offense could be a total mess for, for all I know. So, like, I, I don't – I'm not saying Michigan's, like, loaded back up to take another run at it. Um, and my my belief in them, them not falling off a cliff is more about this the defensive players halfway back than it is the, the hires they've made. Because I, I, I don't I don't think it's been a particularly good offseason for, for Michigan. They have avoided the mass exodus of, of players via transfer, which is great for them. But um, I'm not so sure that – Sharon Moore was the right move now, given how the other dominoes have fallen there. Yeah. Um, 
there's no way that that's what Michigan anticipated when they elevated yeah. the coordinator, that you have to completely remake the other side of the football. So we'll see. Uh, somebody else asked me about that. I was like, you guys should talk about this. I'm so excited for what the game's going to look like in November. And I'm like, this year for me, like, because I just think that Michigan is going to take a fairly significant step back, I don't, I don't think everything is all on the line in the last week in November. Like I'm way more curious about what going on the road against Oregon and going to Penn state looks like for Ohio state. than like what's going to happen in the horseshoe in the rivalry, because like yeah. in my brain, it's like if Ohio state doesn't win and win fairly easily, I mean, the, I would be surprised by that. And also I don't want to think about what that conversation is going to look like. <laughs> I think it's. Uh, I, I, I tell me if you think this is fair to say. So of of the three big games next year at Oregon, at Penn State, home against Michigan, just from a pure talent standpoint, how good the opponent is, not the stakes of the game, not the emotions involved with it. I, Michigan is the third third of the three. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, yeah. So, and that doesn't mean they're bad. It just means that it's it's not quite what they were the last two years at least i i don't think i don't think so and their schedule's brutal like they could be really beat up by the time they get to the ohio state game too yeah yeah i just like and i know my evaluation of that is different than the ohio state fan which wants blood and retribution and revenge and they're going to look forward to that game no matter what for 365 days i i get that without question not arguing uh i get it i'm just saying in terms of like establishing success for Ohio state in 2024. I don't feel like Michigan is the bar for that this year. And just because I don't think that the Wolverines are a legitimate championship contender and Oregon and Penn state have, we're going to have more say in the big 10 race and what that means for the college football playoff than Michigan doesn't mean that you shouldn't look forward to the rivalry. And if you've been waiting four years for uh, that to end and for the, Ohio State to get back on the right side of that rivalry. I I'm not here to tell you don't feel that way, but like when I'm thinking about Ohio State success this year, it will not be based on if they beat Michigan or not for me personally. And I know that I'll hear about that. Take plenty in the comments below, but uh, that's how I feel. Hmm. <laughs> Good luck with the response to that. One. I, I know. and the thing is, like, I didn't even have to say it, but I did it anyway. It's all right. You're just being honest, which is all you can be. Uh, here's a question from Kalen, who knows that we're in, we're into the into the trading card game. Um, what is your favorite college football card that you have ever pulled? Favorite college football card that I've ever pulled. So you did tell me that we would be answering this question and that I should prepare accordingly. And for a, uh, for a number of reasons, I am going to select this 2023 um, Chronicles draft picks RPA of Jackson Smith and Jigba. Now, it's not the most uh, valuable college football card that I've ever pulled, which is probably uh, a Caleb Williams gold auto uh, with his serial numbered with his jersey number. Um, but that's not, you know, the main goal, uh, as a collector, I do sell cards so that I can afford to stay in the hobby, but guys that I've covered, uh, the fact that it was uh, a patch auto that I pulled it while on video doing road breaks last season before the Notre Dame game, 
the fact that I did it in front of Berm, who would have like <laughs> traded a finger to have hit that card, that makes it cool. So I remember, you know, where we were. I remember like Allie and and my friend John Bryce's wife bringing down uh, Jess bringing down shots of fireball for us to do during that show, and then hitting that card and like the excitement and, and rubbing it in Berm's face. Like that's what makes it cool. Um, I also pulled and opened with you, not on camera, but at Card Collector Two in Grove City. Uh, a color matched Garrett Wilson rookie auto also from Chronicles draft the year before. Um, and so that uh, I'll never be selling either. So those two things are the, my favorites. I love to have a collection, a uh, personal collection of the guys that I've covered who I really enjoyed following their careers. Yeah, I think so. So do I. Um, and I'm trying to get a little better with that. I think the, the best and favorite one I've ever pulled was a dual auto of CJ Stroud and Jackson Smith and Jigba. But I sold it, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have it here to show it to you. Um, but it was a cool card. Um, I think it was a it was a gold variant. It was numbered out of fifty. It had two uh, decent patches on it. Um, I, can't remember, I pulled that maybe about a year ago. Um, but yeah, I so I sold it because it like it was just such an expensive card. Like it would have been silly for me not to sell it at the time that I pulled. Imagine it. if you had it right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Yeah. I guess now if it went back, I guess now it would have gone back up. But it did take a dip initially, so I was I was okay with selling it at the time that I did. So like I didn't have a great answer to show you guys because that's definitely the best one I pulled. Um, but I have a couple. I have well, I couldn't remember. I have this. Like this is one of my favorite cards, college cards. Is a Joe Thomas tie dye auto, but I got this from you. Didn't I? I didn't pull you did get it from me. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do we trade. I we, did. we traded. Yeah. yeah. So I have that. Um, and then I have like again in the along the lines of collecting guys that we've covered. I am trying to build. Uh, so if people aren't familiar with card collecting, you can get like ver numbered variants of a specific card. So I'm trying to build the rainbow here of Paris Johnson um out of the specter set um chronicles draft specter so i have the base card i have the out of five i have the out of 10 i have the out of 49 and i have uh, out of 75 and out of 99 um i'm missing the out of 25 and i'm missing the one of one so i have two more there um to get but when i get them all hopefully one day i plan on like putting them like in a cool display and maybe i'll put it back behind me there next to my uh autographed helmet of cj hicks which is up there too <laughs> by the way right next to eric lindros that ohio state helmet back there is autographed by cj hicks a major collector's item um and perfect for the shelf there yeah so if you've got the one of one paris johnson you know bill needs it and he's gonna do pay, he's gonna pay up for it you'll motivated never find buyer. a more motivated buyer than bill landis <laughs> for the paris johnson one of one yeah have, have not come across it on ebay yet but i, I hope to someday um do you, should i ask the daycare question that i that i posed to you before we started recording uh, yeah let's do it okay so uh austin and i are both fathers but he's been he's been in the game much longer than i have uh so this is a i think a good question for austin this is from sean and it really made me laugh uh i will have another football question i promise my four-year-old is in daycare there's another four-year-old there that bites kicks and hits my kid at least a couple of times a week it's not enough to leave marks or leave the daycare which we otherwise completely love, but I find myself starting to low-key hate this other toddler. My son will come home and say, this kid uh, bit me today, and as soon as I hear his name, I have a visceral, visceral reaction that is totally disproportionate to the situation. I'm not even sure that my own kid has, has bad feelings towards this other kid. They still play together, but I hear his name, and it stimulates an ick-ug response on the level of hearing Michigan. Any advice? <laughs> so, A... 
don't come to us for advice. We are <laughs> yeah, good, not, good we're not professionals. Um, it's a music. I, so I only have Liberty, just the one girl. Uh, she's in first grade and she's had a few, like it's mainly boys. And I'm like, well, they're just, that's how boys flirt. Like they're going to punch <laughs> that. That means they like you, which I don't think is really the case when they're in daycare or, or uh, kindergarten or first grade. And I'm like, well, you know, if, if they don't like you and you don't play well and don't get along, just, you know, ask them why they're being mean to you. And if you did something wrong and that also seemed like too adult of a response. And I don't know if she could actually do that. So I would just said, go away, leave them alone. Don't play with them. And that advice is one that I think the kids actually can take. And I understand because that happened with a couple different kids, mainly boys with Liberty. And I was like, well, you just need to avoid them. And But it, for me, I was more upset with the daycare for like letting that happen. And so I didn't blame the kid. What if I hear the name be like, well, just stay away from them. But if it's happening every single week, that needs to be the adult's responsibility to take care of that. Not a five or a six-year-old who has is learning how to play with other people. Like that's, where's the, where's the adult in charge here? Come yeah. on. This is what scares me because um, my answer to this question would be to tell your kid to bite him back. Uh, so I, <laughs> I need I need to have a long think about this because uh, I assume that my child, uh, who is one and already a maniac, uh, will find his way into some similar situations, whether he's the one being bitten or the one biting other people. I don't know. I'm a little scared about that scenario, too. So uh, but but I know like when I was a kid, I would be would have been told to just like hit him back. <laughs> Yeah, so that's probably well, not the best parenting advice. You also like had brothers, and so yes. part of that uh, physical education was going to come at home. Um, and I, you know, I had a sister who was relatively close in age, so we worked out a lot of those things and figured out how to play and get along in the same house. And like, I feel like that's the challenge, and why I put the onus on when Liberty is not in the house, she's an only child, and she's gonna be an only child. It's like need her to get along with the other kids and i need to trust that and i'm not naming names or pointing fingers at, at all of these teachers who do thankless jobs and have other kids that they have to manage throughout a day uh they can't just be focused solely on my kid but like that's half the day when they're at a daycare or in school and where she's learning like the social skills that i need her to have because we couldn't give her a sibling. So that's um, different than maybe like you were learning to hit back. And when wasn't a good time to hit back because your brothers were probably going to make you pay for it. Yeah. Well, it was the other way around. They learned when to not hit, when <laughs> not to right. hit back. Because okay. right. I'm a large human being and they're not. But you know, <laughs> we, we work with what we got. Uh, all right. Let's let's uh, let's close this out with a football question and then a berm question. Um, from Michael H. Uh, he addressed this to me, but you know, I, I'd be curious what you think about this too, Austin. Um, I'm curious for some more thoughts on the offensive line situation. Not so much who will play where, but rather what is the realistic floor and realistic ceiling for the unit as a whole? It's a bit of a strange spot because only two guys from last year are definitely back in their same spots, Josh Simmons and Donovan Jackson. So in theory, the floor should be even lower, but given the options available to them in the other three spots, 
both the floor and the ceiling feel a good bit higher than this time last year. And I agree with that assessment. I, th I think that the, the ceiling's a little harder to figure out, but I, I do think the floor is, is higher and, you know, there's a good point. Like there's only two returning starters back, but I think Seth McLaughlin at center is going to prove to be an upgrade there. So I feel like that's a solid position too. And I like their options to figure out the other two spots. So, you know, do I think it's going to be the best off offensive line in the country? Like, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you that today. Um, but I think it's got a definite shot of being much better than it was last year. And I think the floor is maybe somewhat significantly higher. I, I, I don't know. Um, I just think it's going to be better, I guess. And maybe I'll reserve the right to change my mind after we watch spring practice. But as we're going into it, I actually, I actually do think they're positioned. Okay. So I don't, I don't think that they can reach. They don't have a Paris Johnson mm -hmm. on this team. Um, they don't, I don't think they have any first round NFL linemen on this team, at least that are going to be starting for them. They may, they may develop one down the road, but if you're looking at this group, they remind me a little bit more of like Michigan for the last couple of years. And, you know, I, I understand that that's not a comparison that anyone wants to make, but they were not comprised of a bunch of superstars. They had guys who were going to get drafted. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being a third to sixth round NFL draft pick on the offensive line. Like if you have five of those or more, great. Like you're going to have one of the better offensive lines in the country. I don't think Ohio state is likely to have the best overall group, but what made Michigan so successful over the last couple of years, NFL caliber guys who may not have been five-star recruits, the most coveted recruits in the country experience. Again, if Josh Fryer moves, he's still going to have a year of starting experience under his belt. Seth McLaughlin's got multiple years of starting under his belt. Even if he's new to Ohio state, uh, you know, Josh Simmons will be his, starting for his third year in college football, second at Ohio State, and Donovan Jackson uh, is the most experienced of that group by far. So all those guys have the physical development required, their draft quality, if not first-round picks, and what else made Michigan successful? Understanding what that group did well and building a scheme, whether that's rushing yep. or pass protection around what they do well and letting them go to work, play in and play out. Part of this conversation cannot just be about the five guys on the field for Ohio State, but a comprehensive plan for using them that Justin Fry, Chip Kelly, and Ryan Day. I don't I'm I'm more curious about that. It's can Chip what are Chip Kelly and Justin Fry gonna do to raise the ceiling schematically? And I don't know the answer to that. And you're you're better equipped than I to answer that. But even still, like we don't know what the ideal solution is. We are not um uh, we're not Chip Kelly. We're not Justin Fry with the depth of knowledge of how to uh, get those guys to reach their full potential. But I, I, I grit your teeth and understand that I mean that like I'm going to pay a compliment to Michigan. They did that without like true first rounders at every single spot. Ohio State can definitely accomplish that this year. Yeah, no, I think that's a good comparison to make, and I think Chip Kelly is a big part of the conversation. Um, his ability to like schematically identify what his players do best, I, I think is going to be a real, real help here. Um, I think like, like the pass protection is one thing, right? That's, that's 
you know, you got to use a spring in the summer just to get a little better. And that's, that's more of a Justin Fry thing. But and then I think like Ryan Day empowering Chip Kelly and Justin Fry to like really take a hard look at this rushing attack and, and the plan for it and figure out what's best for this line um, could really take them to, to, to much better places, I think, than they, than they were last year. And I think about UCLA um, two years ago. So it would have been Justin Fry's last year there um 2022 season no is that right i guess it was the first year after justin fry left um they had like the best rushing offense in the country and i think only one of their offensive linemen got drafted um so like chip kelly is has like kind of always been a guy and i don't mean this come up the wrong way with the offensive line who's like figured out ways to do more with less in like really impactful ways and now he has a lot of talent on hand but like and 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 that schematic mind that combined with it, like I, I think it's going to work out really well for the offensive line. That's part of the reason for my optimism. I'm more optimistic about that group now, knowing that Chip Kelly has coordinated the offense than I would have been with Bill O'Brien. Um, it's not to say they couldn't take a step forward either way, anyway, because I think they would have. But but I think this is just a much better situation to kind of get the most out of them. So again, like I don't I don't think you're looking at a line that's going to have frankly a bunch of dudes drafted very highly and maybe some of them won't be won't be drafted at all um we'll see like the guy with the highest draft ceiling is probably donovan jackson um but i don't know that there's a first rounder in that group i don't you don't need one either Ohio State won a national championship with a first round left tackle like point well made uh a five foot nine center <laughs> jacoby born and a defensive lineman playing right tackle right it's about it's about <laughs> how the pieces come together and the plan to use them, I think, talent matters certainly, and and talent can solve a lot of problems. But I don't think you need to be the most talented offensive line in the world to be a good one. Um, and and I think Ohio State has an interesting collection of guys there to have a good one next year, so long as like some of the young guys we've been talking about make make the jumps that we're expecting them to, and the veteran players returning learn from from some of the lumps they took last year. So I I, I think that the ceiling and floor and ceiling are definitely higher. I feel I feel more certain now about the floor being higher than, than it was last year. Um, last question from Randy. Uh, and again, this is addressed to me, but you feel free. You, you probably are more equipped to answer it than I am. Uh, since Berm is away, what are the one or two things that are most irritating about him? And then he said, it's Friday. <laughs> so let it rip Philly style. Um, I don't have an answer to that. I don't find anything that Berm does irritating other than he works too much. Um, but, but aside from that, um, he's a great guy that I don't have any problems with. But you spend more time with him than I do. He's he's like that old, like, what are you supposed to answer in your interviews, like, for your weaknesses? Oh, my weaknesses are actually strengths. Berm, <laughs> the, the thing that we argue about and disagree about is how hard he works. And you think, well, that's that shouldn't be a problem. He wants to do things 24 hours a day. And it is because he cares a lot about what we do and i'm not saying that i don't it is because he cares a lot about what our audience um expects from us and it's not because i don't but i also look and evaluate what things resonate uh what gets read what gets watched what people like and he wants to make sure that even the person who if only five people watch it that they get they get that covered. They get that itch scratched. Well, he does value your time more, Berm. Like, make it more impactful. You don't have to work 24 hours a day, okay? And even if 
he was sitting over there and not on vacation, I would say the exact same thing because I have over and over and over. <laughs> Please take a vacation. He finally did that. This is the first time in uh, seven years that we have been working like together and uh, have, have tied our livelihoods uh, to each other that he hasn't like just taken the computer and written while on vacation edited every piece of content even while he's gone like he has still done a little bit but not you know there are been multiple days this week where we haven't heard from him at all that's never happened and it's I'm great it really, makes me so happy i'm really glad that it did i've never been because, so happy to not not to talk to somebody yeah but that's it and that sounds like we're just i'm just complimenting him i'm not I, <laughs> I don't mean that as a compliment. That means that he is imbalanced. That he he's got to separate the work occasionally um, from that. He makes fun of us for liking wrestling, but also he secretly enjoys it. And we've caught him in the last couple of weeks watching it when he's not been forced when he's staying over at the ward house um, as part of coverage. You know, so he's also a liar. <laughs> he works uh, too hard and he's a liar. <laughs> because he actually does enjoy wrestling and he wants to make fun of Bill and I for uh, liking it. But guess what, buddy? It's the greatest entertainment value on the market. And That's I know right. that and I know that you're watching it now at home when you're not here. So suck it. <laughs> He's gonna be upset when we're at WrestleMania. I can. He's gonna it. be so mad. He's gonna be so yeah. jealous. Yeah. Like, who wouldn't want to be there for the biggest spectacle in sports entertainment, and like ripping cards and drinking beer and going to WrestleMania for a bucket list uh, activity? Like, he's gonna be insanely jealous. Yep, that's all right. He 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 chose this life, yeah. so it's all on him. All right, that's I, that's all the questions. And I will not be working that weekend. By the way, <laughs> you know, you won't want me working that weekend. You will not get a quality product. That's right. We should, we should do a, a WrestleMania show. We can do that. Yeah. Oh, we can do a WrestleMania watch along on night one. And no one will want it. Yeah. Just be me, you, and <laughs> Josh Mustachio. <laughs> Shout out to him, by the way. Yeah. He texts us about wrestling sometimes. We appreciate it. Okay. So that's it. We had that's more it. questions. But we've already gone way more than a normal Freaky Friday episode. Um, thanks for uh, tagging along with us all week. Uh, Berm will be back, but Ber Bill and I will have some uh, position previews next week as we get ready. Because then guess what? I'm going on another vacation on Thursday Ooh. and Friday. So uh, I don't have any problem with that. Um, but if we record those ahead of time, just know. They won't be live on Thursday or Friday morning because I will be at Pinehurst, North Carolina. Spoiler alert. Um, this wasn't filmed on Friday morning either because there was a segment that we had to remove about James Laurinaitis. Full disclosure. Um, <laughs> you'll never hear it. Sorry. Uh, some other time we'll get into it. Anyway, this has been the podcast daily. It's been Freaky Friday. It's been a mailbag. We thank you all for giving us your questions on subtext. And I thank Bill Landis, as always, for his insight and for leading that with all the questions this week. For Bill, I'm Austin. Enjoy your weekend.